You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. This morning, as we continue our summer sermon series on prayer, uh, we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture, uh, Luke 11, verses 5 through 13, and then Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Elise referenced, uh, Luke 11, 5 through 13 can be found on page 869, and then Luke 18, 1 through 8 can be found on page 877. And as you turn there, I just want to give a shout out to our Liberty students, uh, also known as Liberty uh, Youth. Uh, this past Thursday night, our Liberty students uh, joined the third, normal Third Thursday crew in serving at New Hope. And they did a gr- great job serving and interacting with the guests who came that night. Uh, at New Hope, there are times during any given evening when it's really crazy busy. And then other times where you're almost standing around looking for something to do. You're just waiting for another guest to come. But the students really rolled with that very well. They were a great blessing to the guests. They were a blessing to the regular uh, Thursday night crew. So thank you, students. And then uh, they came back again the next day, Friday morning, and they washed cars for the guests who came that morning free of charge. And then they also went to the back and... um, Uh, sorted some of the food that's in the pantry there. So Liberty students, thanks. Uh, Really appreciate you uh, jumping in and serving uh, at New Hope. Yes, yes, yes. So we're just going to jump right into our passages today. Uh, First, follow along with me as I read from God's Word, Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, he being Jesus, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." What father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then jumping over to Luke 18, starting at verse 1. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray. Guide us, O Lord, in this moment that we would proclaim your greatness and power, that we would declare your love and grace, and that we would give you all praise and glory and honor. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at these two parables, two stories that Jesus told to help his disciples understand something of the kingdom of God, and in particular, how God hears and responds to his people when they pray. And as we do, we're going to be looking at two points, that trusting God leads us to pray, and then that praying to God leads us to trust. Trust leads to prayer, and prayer leads to trust. So first, let's talk about how trust leads us to pray, and as we look at these two parables, we'll uncover two bases for trust. First, we'll see trust based on a personal relationship, and then we'll see trust based on a position of authority. Personal relationship, position of authority. So first, trust based on a personal relationship, and that's what we see in Luke 11. Back in verse 1 of chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus, to teach them to pray. As other scholars have noted, there's no record in Scripture that the disciples ever asked Jesus how to preach, or how to heal, or how to drive out demons, or how to endure suffering. But they did ask Him how to pray. As we see throughout the four Gospels, Jesus seemingly took every opportunity He could to go off on His own and pray. And no doubt the disciples saw this, and so they somewhat naturally asked him how to pray. We often think that Jesus' answer to their question is the Lord's Prayer, which we see in verses 2 through 4. And as Pastor Matt shared in his sermon last Sunday on the Lord's Prayer, it certainly is the beginning of his answer. But it's not all of his answer. And this parable continues his answer to their request, Lord teach us to pray. And so Jesus tells the story of a traveling friend who has shown up in this village, and he has shown up to his friend's house at night, probably traveling in the night to avoid the heat of the day. And one of the things that would have been customary, just as it is in our day, is that the host, the friend, would provide something to eat to the guest. But the host realizes, as we see in verse 6, that he doesn't have any bread to supply to his friend. Now, if something like that happens in our day, 
it's not that big a deal. We just call DoorDash, place an order, tip the driver, problem solved. But in first century AD, this was a big problem where hospitality was expected and honor and shame were the lenses through which much of life was viewed. He's desperate. He has nothing. So the host is left with really one option. I'll go to my neighbor. I'll go to my friend. I trust that he will help me. So he goes to his neighbor, his friend, and the first response he gets from his friend is in verse 7, and it's the response that maybe you and I would be prone to give. Don't bother me. My door's shut. My children are in bed. I'm not going to get up and give you anything to eat. But the friend doesn't go down to the next house on the block. This isn't just any neighbor. It's his friend. So he keeps on knocking and knocking and knocking until finally the neighbor gets up, answers the door, and gives him whatever he needs. Maybe you have one or two people in your life who you would answer the door for at two in the morning. Or even better, maybe you have one or two friends who you would wake up at two in the morning. People you've lived life with. People who you've walked with through times of joy and times of sorrow. People who have sat with you while you cried, danced with you while you celebrated, called you out when you needed it. And through sharing those experiences, a level of trust develops. For the past 18 and a half years, Mark Rocky and I have been getting together almost every Friday morning. We share what's going on in each other's lives. We hold each other accountable for areas in our lives where we have a tendency to sin. We pray together. During those 18 and a half years, we've gone through things. We've seen our kids grow and leave the house. We've each walked daughters down the aisle on their wedding day. We've helped each other transition to being empty nesters, and now we're helping each other understand even what it means to be a father to adult children. We've gone through challenging situations in our jobs. Mark helped me uh, transition to retirement a few years ago, and one day, Lord willing, I'll have a chance to return the favor. When we first started meeting in January of 2005, I would, consider Mark, I would have considered Mark an acquaintance. But over the years, Mark and I have developed a deep trust in one another. He's a true two-in-the-morning friend. And the basis of our trust, like the basis for the trust between the friend and his neighbor in Luke 11, is their personal relationship. Personal relationship establishes trust. That's not at all the case as we look at Luke 18. There's no sort of personal relationship between the widow and the judge that would establish a basis for trust. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Put yourself in the shoes of the Hebrews who would have first heard these words, the Jewish people in the first century who would have heard Jesus teaching this story. So Jesus starts his story and he says, there was a judge and he did not fear God and he did not respect people. And immediately, the Jewish people who are hearing this story say, Yoy, whoever's going into his courtroom is in trouble. But then the story gets worse. Jesus next says, and there's a widow. And immediately, everybody thinks, 
double yoy. Because in Jesus' time, a widow is the perfect picture of a person in society without resources and without influence. She's a woman, and she's a widow, and in that culture, that's pretty much the bottom of the pit. And this widow is not just coming to any judge. She's coming to this judge, a judge who couldn't give two hoots about God or anybody else, let alone a pathetic widow. But she goes to the judge, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. Like the friend who went to his neighbor because he had no place else to go, the widow kept going to the judge because she had no place else to go. He was the only one who was in a position to grant her relief. Jesus tells us that she goes back to him again and again and again. She will not leave this judge alone. And then finally, he breaks. He says to himself, this woman is driving me crazy. And just to get her out of my hair so she doesn't wear me out, I'm going to give her justice because I don't want to see her again. The widow didn't trust the judge on any sort of personal level. No one would. But she trusted the judge, or perhaps better put, entrusted the judge with her case because he was the only one in a position to grant her justice. Her trust in the judge was based on his position of authority. Now, I don't need to tell you that we live in a time when the very concept of authority brings about strong reactions, at the least a rolling of the eyes or cynical laughter. A great many people view those in authority just as the people in this time viewed this judge, unjust, unrighteous, unlikely to do the right thing. And that pretty much holds true no matter which side of the aisle you find yourself on. And yet the reality is that whether it's for a driver's license or a passport or for justice in case we've been harmed legally, we appeal to these authorities for relief. We don't know them personally. We may have concerns and questions about their character and their integrity. But in certain cases, we have no place else to go. And we trust or hope that those in authority will, at the end of the day, do the right thing. So we have trust based on a personal relationship and trust rooted in one being in a position of authority. And of course, we see that in the person of Jesus Christ, God fulfills both of these roles perfectly. He is the authority in whom we can really trust. We read in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the power of his word, he causes the wind and the waves to go from a raging storm to a peaceful calm. With a mere word, he causes a lame man to walk, a blind man to see, and the dead to come back to life. And without even saying a word, he caused a woman he did not know and had never met to finally stop bleeding after 12 long years, long after all hope had been lost. This story takes place just a few chapters earlier in Luke 8, and it's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. 
This woman had been bleeding for 12 long years. She had spent all her money. She had visited all the doctors. She had seen all the healers. None of them had been able to heal her. In fact, her condition had only gotten worse. For 12 years, her life consisted of watching as people skirted around her to avoid the possibility of contact. She lived in isolation. And to the extent anybody even acknowledged her existence, she was known for one thing. She was unclean. I often wondered what was running through her mind that morning. I mean, as far as we know, this woman had never met Jesus, had never seen his face, had never heard him preach or teach. She hadn't seen him perform a miracle. She had only heard stories. But her trust in Jesus' authority to heal her outweighed everything that would have told her to stay home. And so she went, and she waded through that crowd that considered her unclean. And she touched maybe just the tassel of his garment. And she was immediately healed. And after Jesus asked who had touched him, the woman finally came trembling before him and admitted that she was the one who had touched him. And Jesus looked her in the eye and said, Daughter, your faith, your trust in the power of God living in me has made you well. And while there's no indication that she verbally prayed, her actions represent a prayer, an appeal to the only person left who was in a position of authority to heal her. But Jesus is not only one we can trust because of his position of authority, we can also trust him because of the personal relationship we have with him, one he initiated out of his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend to people like you and me. Now, to be clear, Jesus was a friend of sinners not because he winked at sin or ignored sin or enjoyed lighthearted hijinks with those engaged in immorality. He didn't want to just hang out with the cool kids. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and who wanted to know what it meant to be one of his followers. And because Jesus welcomes sinners like us, we can go to him not only as one who has all authority, but also as our friend. One of the great hymns of the faith puts it this way, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So my question for you this morning is simply this. Do you know this Jesus? Do you acknowledge him as the king of heaven and earth whose reign will endure forever and ever? 
And do you know him as your friend who loves you with an everlasting love, who sits at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for you even when you're not praying? If you don't know this Jesus, please don't leave here today without asking someone about him. Ask me. Ask the person who brought you. Ask the person you're sitting beside. Ask anybody who you've seen up here today. Don't leave here today without seriously considering what you believe about Jesus. If you do know Jesus, do you trust him? And is that trust proving itself in your prayer life? And if your prayer life is weak, consider if it's because you don't recognize the power and authority of Jesus or if it's because you have a distant and impersonal relationship with him. Friends, we can fully trust Jesus with our prayers because of his position of authority and also because of the personal relationship that he has established with us. And this trust motivates us, compels us, gives us confidence that we can trust God with our prayers. Trust leads us to pray. So second, let's look at how prayer leads us to trust. The late theologian and principal of Princeton Seminary, Charles Hodge, once listed out a number of essential elements for prayer. Two he listed back-to-back are what I'd like to focus on this morning. Importunity and submission. First, importunity. We see this in Luke 8, where the English Standard Version translates it as impudence. It's not a word we frequently hear or use. In fact, prior to this morning, I've never said that word in my life, and it's doubtful I ever will again. But it's a vitally important word if we're to fully understand how we can approach God with our prayers. So let's take a few moments to get a handle on it. One writer identified five components of praying with importunity. First, importune prayer has a shameless boldness. Importunity comes from a Greek word, anadeia. That's the negative prefix an, which means without, and adeia, which means shame or respect or modesty. Some versions translate that as boldness, shamelessness, brazen insistence, even shameless persistence, all good translations. More casually, we might call it nerve or even guts. Jesus is teaching us here to pray with shameless boldness, even with brazen insistence. Matthew Henry said, we prevail with men by importunity because they are displeased with it. But we prevail with God by importunity because he is pleased with it. Praying with importunity means praying with shameless boldness. Second, importune prayer is continual and persistent with a goal of receiving what we desire. We see this in both of these parables. In Luke 11, ultimately the neighbor didn't get out of bed because he was his friend. He got up because he realized that his friend would never stop knocking until he did get out of bed. And in Luke 18, the judge didn't suddenly have a flash of decency and decide to do the right thing. In fact, when the judge says in verse 5, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down, that phrase, beat me down, 
can also be translated, give me a black eye. And whether it means a black eye on his reputation if he didn't grant her justice, or if he was afraid that she was going to take her cane and whack him upside the head until he gave her, until he gave her justice, he knew that she would never stop leaving him alone. Persistent, continual asking is a way that we demonstrate our trust in God. We see that in the introduction to the parable in Luke 18. Jesus says that he told this parable to show us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Importunity means means that we are persistent with our prayers. Third, importune prayer is intense and increases in intensity. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 11, verses 9 and 10, when he summarized the teaching of the parable by saying, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The verbs there are actually present participles. It's as if Jesus is saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Importune prayer is much like a well-fought battle. It's the intensity we see in Jacob as he wrestled all night with God. And even when God ended the match and he dislocated Jacob's hip, Jacob replied, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. This response pleased God, who pronounced this blessing on Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Importune prayer is intense. Fourth, importune prayer does not give up when times are difficult or when the goal is not in view. We see this in Luke 18. The widow never gave up asking for justice until she got it. In the parable, she demonstrated what it means to always pray and to not lose heart. And in this story, the woman got what she wanted. But what if the goal of our asking is not in view? That is, what if there doesn't seem to be much hope for the answer? Should we keep on praying? Yes, If we are sure that what we are praying for is consistent with God's will and God's word, we must never, never, never quit praying for it, even if the answer doesn't come in a week or a month or a year or 10 years or even in our lifetime. Importune prayer is the kind of prayer that really demonstrates our faith in difficult times, and God will answer those prayers if not in this lifetime, in the one to come when Jesus returns. And then fifth and lastly, importune prayer is energized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was arrested and brought to trial, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we pray with importunity, our prayers are energized by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are able to pray persistently through hard trials. In the flesh, we will never be able to keep praying through difficult circumstances. But in the Spirit, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, we will always be able to continue praying on and on and on for as long as it takes. And so we pray with importunity, with persistence, relentlessly trusting in the unfailing love of the King of heaven and earth 
and trusting in our Savior and friend, Jesus. At the same time, we also pray with submission. Submission is praying, thy will be done. It's recognizing that God is God and I am not, and trusting that whatever God ordains is right. I will take and accept what he gives. I will receive it as the right thing, even when in this moment, I don't understand how that could possibly be. That really seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How could we be both shamelessly persistent and humbly submissive in our prayers? I'm not sure I'll ever completely understand that. But we hold these two things in tension. For to pray without submission reflects a failure to trust in the sovereignty and wisdom and goodness of God. But to pray without relentlessness reflects a failure to trust our loving Father who would never give his children a serpent instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg. Of course, we'll get it wrong sometimes. We'll persist when we're meant to submit, and we'll submit when we're meant to persist. But let us anchor our prayers in a place of saying, God, I trust you. And then let's bring our request to him with both humility and confidence, trusting that he will hear our prayers and do something with them. There's perhaps no better illustration of this than the account of the father of a demon-possessed boy in Mark 9. This father had brought his son to the disciples previously and asked them to cast out the demon that was inside of his boy. They couldn't do it. And so he brings his son to Jesus, and right there, the demon inside the boy caused him to go into a convulsion. And right in front of his dad and in front of Jesus, this boy is rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth. Can you imagine the desperation of this father? And he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father asks in humility. He's utterly helpless. But he also asks with boldness, Jesus, please, this is my boy. Help him, please. Do something. Jesus replies, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is asking this man to ask with more confidence. He's saying to the man, I hear your helplessness, but believe. And God's word tells us that this father, mustering all the confidence that he can, knowing that he truly has no place else to go, replies with these words, I believe, help my unbelief. In those five words, we see the shortest, but one of the best prayers in all of Scripture. A couple weeks ago, I celebrated my 64th birthday, and when I was younger, I would have thought that by now, I would have no need of a prayer like this. I believe. Help my unbelief. I would just believe. Unbelief would be a fading, distant memory. But it's a prayer that I find myself praying more and more as the years go by, as I experience more suffering and more pain, as I realize more and more of the effects of sin and brokenness in my life and in the lives of my friends. 
And as I find myself longing more and more for all that's wrong in the world to be made right by Jesus, for his kingdom to come and his rule and reign to be known throughout the earth, I believe, help my unbelief. As we've been providing tools throughout this series for you to use in developing and growing in your life of prayer, I would encourage you, memorize Mark 9, 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the tool this week. Write it inside the cover of your Bible. Write it in the notebook that you keep with you as you pray. Uh, Make it the wallpaper of your phone. I believe. Help my unbelief. And then consider this. What is it that you think is too big of a request for you to bring to God? Or what is it that you have stopped praying for because there was no answer? Or it seemed as if your prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. And I'm not talking here about prayers for a Maserati or generational wealth or a beach house or any of that. There are plenty of churches this morning who would uh, teach these parables in that way. Health and wealth. A focus on that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But Jesus isn't talking about any of that. He's talking about the kingdom of God being made real in our lives and in this world that he loves. So is there a sin that you just can't seem to let go of, that has plagued you for weeks and months and years, and you've given up even asking God about it? Have you given up asking God to make your marriage new once again or to revive a friendship that has been lost? Do you have a child who's walked away from the faith and you've given up hope that they'll ever come back? Or maybe it's even matters outside of yourself. I hope it is. I hope our prayers go outside of the boundaries of our skin or the walls of our house. Is it the brokenness that you see as you serve at New Hope, or as you learn more and more about the work of Peace Promise, or as you hear stories of the tragic circumstances that even make something like fatherlessness and foster care and adopted children necessary, or as you hear, hear stories of women who feel they have no better alternative than to seek an abortion. Have you given up hope that God will ever do anything about any of that? I would encourage you this week, dust those prayers off and begin to pray. And then pray again and again and again with shameless confidence and humble submission to the God whom we trust. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to make a priority of prayer, that you would help us to see and celebrate the answers to prayer that you grant, to learn submission to prayers that you deny, and to learn patience as we await answers that have yet to come. Empower us by your Spirit that we would pray boldly, that we would pray confidently, that we would pray constantly, that we would storm the gates of heaven in prayer until the day Christ returns. May that day be this day. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.